This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. Oh, Evan, I thought you were going to make reference to the, the New York Islanders, the yes, 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 Sportacast, something, because now we don't really root for teams. You know, I, I'm sort of past that. However, if I had a soft spot for a professional sports franchise, it would be the New York Islanders. As you know, I grew up, I was 10 years old, living on Long Island, about 20 minutes from the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, whatever they call it now. When they won their first Stanley Cup, of course, that would be Bobby Nye in overtime with the tip or from the Tonelli Pass. You know, that was pandemonium. And then to be there when they win four. Now, this this puck, Eben, is like, I, it's got to be. Look at that. It's like, I, I don't know which year, but it's like an 82, 83, 80, somewhere in that title run. And I still have this. As you know, I fell in love with hockey because of that. Um, my son plays hockey because I fell in love with hockey. So if you trace it all back, it was because of the Islanders. And, you know, the, the names are like Podvin, Bossy, Trachier, Gillies, Nystrom, uh, Billy Smith. My son wears number 31 on the ice. He thinks I let him think it was because of Carey Price because he likes Carey. But for me, it, it was I, I was very happy. It was it was Billy Smith. Right. Of course. And he sort of got the same crazy temperament on the ice. I wish he didn't. But uh, that's how he plays. And I have a great photo, which I'm going to have to find. I don't have it right here. But I took a great photo. We played against the Junior Islanders one, one year. And we played at Northwell, which is their practice facility. And I have my son standing on the ice. Like you can see his back, the name 31, right underneath the Billy Smith banner. The big 31 hanging. So you know, just good stuff. That said... The New York Islanders are on some kind of run. Congratulations, John Ledecky. I know nothing. And by the way, we think, we think John Ledecky is going to be our guest later in the week. We're hoping to get John. It's looking good. Which would be great. Yeah, but they are on some sort of run right now, beating the Penguins, beating the Bruins. As we record, up on the Lightning, one nothing with a victory in, in game one of the Eastern, well, what I would have called the Eastern Conference Final, whatever it is now with all the divisions, whatever it may be. Um, and I'll tee up like this. If you're going to go on a run like this, there is no better time than when the Islanders are doing it. 
Yeah, not only are we kind of coming out of a pandemic at a time when team revenue is is crunched all over, the Islanders are building a brand new arena, a $1.5 billion UBS arena. Uh, and this is coming, as you said, Scott, at a, at a perfect time. They, they want to have 15,000 of the 17,000 seats in that arena booked up in uh, in season tickets. And it looks like they're going to reach that. They, they, they have hit that point already. Um, and, and as a comparison, their last year at the Barclays Center, 2018-2019, they had 3,500 season ticket holders. So to go from 3,500 a couple years ago to 15,000 in a brand new building now, yes, the success that they're having right now uh, could not have come at a better time for the kind of long-term financial future of this team. You have to wonder, uh, are John Ledecky and Scott Malkin sitting back saying, wait a minute, maybe we didn't charge enough. <laughs> Had we just held back several thousand seats or our sponsorship and UBS, of course, is the naming rights partner on the arena, maybe we could have gotten some more. I don't think they're going to be that greedy. But to have this sort of momentum, you know, what do we say in sports? Winning cures all ills. Not that there were many ills going in, but if if you are opening a new facility and you're seeking sponsorship and you want attention. And we all know the other partner in the building is going to be music, right? That's what we're hearing from Tim Laiwiki. It's like the Islanders are a core tenant, but the music itself is sort of that other core tenant. Uh, really a lot of good, good momentum. And we should note a lot of stuff to work for our former boss, by the way, Evan, Jay Bieberman, the head of publicity over there. Mm. Mazel tov, Jay Bieberman, who's, who's running around like crazy during this playoff run. Um, you know, that, that's sort of a trial by fire, but, uh, he's very busy these days because there's just, there's just so much attention on this franchise right now. And he's going to have a nicer office next year. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, one of the things that I, uh, that, that kind of jumped out to me, Barry Bloom wrote a story for us this week, the economics of, of, of new stadium, new arenas, and particularly this one, I think are really fascinating. So as I said, 17,000 is the capacity for UBS arena. 15,000 of that is going to be season tickets. That includes a lot of the club and suite level, et cetera. Of the remaining tickets, 250 for each game are going to be saved for community groups, some kind of like local activation, things like that. The other 1,500 are game day sales. That seems like a recipe for success from a business standpoint. If you have a 17,000 person arena, 15,000 of those tickets are already paid for, booked through the entire season through season tickets. And then you only have 1,500 game day sales uh, that, that, that will kind of ebb and flow with who the opponent is, what night of the week it is, how well the Islanders are playing, et cetera. That seems like a really nice setup in terms of having a consistent revenue stream from tickets. Again, you know, when things go through the head, most people don't say it. But you know me, I always say it. Like you said, Look ebb out. and flow. And I'm, and I'm looking at you <laughs> and with your hair, like I'm thinking ebb and flow. Like we're talking hockey, like ebb and flow with that, with the long playoff type hair. You've got the Steve Stamkos look, uh, not ebb. And flow, and I know you don't have the answer to this, Novi Williams, but I, maybe I wonder. I do. Maybe I maybe do. you do. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do. Um, but when you have sort of that big a chunk taken up, and if there's high demand, what's the setup for the secondary market? Will the Islanders be able to capitalize on their? See, I can tell by that look, you don't have the answer. But uh, <laughs> can, can they? I knew it. I tried to help you out there, uh, but you had to boast. Maybe I do. Um, you know. Can they benefit from the secondary market as well? Will they, will they be taking a cut of that as well? Because that, that is now part of what franchises are looking at. How do we become part of the secondary market sale and how do we get our cut of that resale? 
Yeah, and one of the things that's making that a bit easier, we talked about this a few weeks ago with Akshay Khanna, who runs StubHub's North American business. Uh, the fact that almost everything is shifting towards mobile ticketing now. I think in the NFL, this upcoming season is going to be entirely mobile ticketing. Uh, it, it becomes a lot easier to track and also to kind of control the resale of tickets when they are fully digital and mobile, as opposed to having a piece of paper, Scott, that you and I can meet uh, on a corner in New York City and you can pay me $250 for. It's easier to track. And and, and the big thing, I mean, there's two parts of the secondary market there that the teams care about. Obviously, they care about the money. They'd love to see a cut of that. They also care about just the the, the consumer data. They want to know if if I, again, using yeah, that who's example, our customer? If, yeah. yeah, if I give my ticket to you on a street corner, they have no way of knowing who you are. If it has to be a digital transaction, it's a lot easier to track that. So both those things are becoming easier for teams. Yeah, then you can also market like the concerts we talked about and the tractor pulls and the Disney on ice and all that stuff. You know where else there's a lot of big money around? College football. Mm. And they want more of it. I'm like, I I don't know. I'm okay with the four-team playoff. Like, I, I never get all hung up on the, like, oh, who's number five and they got left out, right? But, gee, I, I don't think it's really based on the competitive model here as to why the powers that be in college football are looking to expand to 12 teams from four. You know, the student-athletes can play a few more games. Something tells me, Eben, and this is why we're talking about it on this program, that it's got a little to do with the money. No question. And and it's it's funny, when, when the four-team playoff kicked in, everybody was already talking about, are we going to expand it? When are we going to expand it? I would have said for years that it was, it was going to happen at some point. It appears we're going to jump right past eight and go straight to 12. The college football committee uh, is meeting in June to discuss more seriously, but the proposal on the table, the, the leading proposal is to go to a 12-team playoff. This won't happen this year. It obviously won't happen next year either, but 2023 seems like the earliest this could kick in. And you're right, Scott, this is, this is all about money. ESPN has a $7.3 billion 12-year deal to televise the, the four-team play, the, the, the four playoff. That's, that's three games, the two semifinals. And remind and everybody I've been of ESPN's relationship with college football. That isn't just broadcasters. Remind, remind yeah, everybody it, the relationship it, that maybe they don't is. know. College football. I mean, not only it is. is it a, is it the the biggest you know rights holder for a lot of live games. They are the partner in a lot of conference networks like the SEC network and the ACC network. They own a lot of the bowl games outright. So I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's around twenty of the bowl games are actually owned by the ESPN events arm. Uh, they televise almost all of those bowl games, also. So yes, ESPN is. Is college? It is the, the driving corporate force behind college football, and I would imagine Scott, when this expands, if it does expand to twelve games, ESPN is going to continue to be the primary rights holder uh, for all of these games as well. Uh, some interesting things to think about here. Obviously, as you said, revenue is going to go up significantly. ESPN right now, the average across its twelve-year deal is about six hundred million dollars a year to televise those things. That will go up significantly under this this new format. We don't know exactly how they're going to dice it up. I saw one report out there that said that it could be a $2 billion annual uh, in, 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 in TV rights alone. And that does not count, obviously, the ticket sales and things like that, that, that college football playoff controls a lot of. Um, and then that obviously gets distributed back down to teams. Right now, the breakdown, about 80% of the money goes to Power 5 schools and about 20% goes to kind of that next group, the five other FBS schools. I don't know if they would keep that distribution, if it would be better or worse for the uh, 
for the big conferences, but no question. If you're talking about a $2 billion a year uh, media rights payout, that's going to be a lot more money that flows into schools like Notre Dame, like Alabama and Ohio State. I thought you were being nice. It seemed there that there was a moment where you were giving me a pause and setting me up for that nice $2 billion from <laughs> the $600 million. And I had my joke all planned out that even though we're recording a tad earlier than usual, even I know that's $1.4 million. Uh, in, in, or, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait what's the math? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can do the math. And by the way, that, that estimate was from Navigate. That's a Chicago area franchise uh, valuations. They kind of they look at all that stuff. So um, I thought you were being nice, but you weren't. You just sort of took a breath and kept on going. And so that's going to leave me with like one other stat that we had in the story that the Power Five conferences each received 67 million and mm-hmm. additional 6 million for each team in the semis. Uh, so clearly that is going to uh, go up considerably. And like you said, those teams, we know where the powerhouses are and we have an idea of which conferences, SEC, will have multiple teams playing here, <laughs> SEC, and, and uh, Big Ten, and see which way all that money goes. But hey, if, if the demand is there, and you and I, I, we have not discussed, but I think we can agree that you and I think the demand is there for more mm-hmm. college football, then they're just giving the public what it wants, and the dollars will be waiting. One other item in here that I that I think is fairly interesting, and it's it's a little in the weeds, but the the way this twelve team playoff will work, the the top four seeds will get a first round bye, and then four, five, six, and seven will host uh, uh, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. So 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 the, the first three te- the first four ranked teams will not host a game in this playoffs. It's the, the seeds that are ranked five through eight will be hosting a first round game. And then starting in the quarterfinals, all those games are neutral site. Those are kind of more traditional bowl games. So you do have a setup where if you're Ohio State and you become the you're the fourth seed, you don't host a playoff game. But if you are the fifth seed, you do host a playoff game. So there's going to be some economics that, that kind of get worked out. Uh, in the wash there. Scott, since I took your stats on this one, I'll let you tee off on on the next one. Nacaxa, the Mexican soccer team that recently got a massive chunk of investment from U.S. owners, is selling, I think this is really fascinating, selling a 1% ownership stake uh, in its team as an NFT. We are almost done with that process now. Some of the bids are in. Give us a sense of how valuable this thing is looking. Why, why thank you, Evan, <laughs> for your for your largesse. Uh, yeah, I, well, the most interesting part here is that this originally was going to be held on OpenSea, and it, and it now is shifted off of OpenSea to the team website or a website, a private website, uh, mostly because the way this is structured is that this can be an appreciating asset, and like this may force OpenSea to be considered a broker-dealer, so they didn't want to really be a part of that. So just the machinations of what are, like you don't even think about and, and the things that come of it, so there we go. But yeah, already 400 plus people, and this is as of last check a few days ago, more than 400 people registered their intent to at least take a peek at this. They already have a bid that is in excess of the reserve of $1.3 million. Like go do the value or the valuation, 1%, $1.3 million. And so you get no voting rights, but there will be no capital calls. You do get some of the ownership perks, sort of like, you know, you'll be able to, you'll get one of these things on your phone where you can hold it up and get into the private, you know, lounge or stuff like that around the stadium. This is, this seems to me like U.S. marketing. And every time you see U.S. owners buying teams outside of the U.S., one of the principal things they're trying to do is sort of bring that U.S. marketing savvy 
uh, sports marketing savvy to that league, that team, that region. You see it a lot with the European soccer investments. They want to figure out ways to upgrade stadiums and get more revenue from there. This is one of those deals where this has not been done by any of the other teams and Al Tylus and Sam Porter come in and boom, like almost immediately shake things up and offer something cool that clearly struck a nerve on the positive side because they have what 50,000 people went to the website. They have 400 people already looking at it. And uh, come Thursday, it'll be best and final bid. And we'll see what this is worth to some fan of the team. Yeah. And, and when we reported about the, the investment, I believe the valuation on the Cox during the investment was low nine figures. So at 1.3 reserve price, we're probably right around maybe even higher than the, the, the valuation for this 1% stake that, 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 that existed in, in a much bigger transaction. My takeaway here, Scott, is that this feels like the next wave of NFT crypto transactions or, or blockchain transactions in sports. You know, we saw the original wave of NBA Top Shot. I don't think anybody thought that was going to be the end-all be-all. But we're now getting to the point where there are some really interesting items that are coming up for sale kind of as a via, through the vehicle of NFTs and, and, and blockchain. And this seems like a great example. I've seen people talking about, could UFC be selling 1% of, of pay-per-view gate or, 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 um, or ticket sales for an event? Just other ways to get fans kind of intensely involved, giving them a, a stake in the, in, in, in the financial success of an event or a team. I don't think we've seen the end of ownership stakes uh, being up for sale on, on blockchain because I think this is going to end up being a big success and I think other people are going to try to replicate it. Why have a deed to a home or anything stuck in a file cabinet somewhere, you know, like this paper deed when you could do it this way? And that's the reason why the NBA created its blockchain committee, right? You know, have got some of the, the tech and financial savvy owners sitting on that committee to figure out other ways to utilize the technology that can in some way produce revenue for not only the teams, but the league. So, yeah, I think we're going to see pop stars selling, you know, 1% token, 1% royalty tokens on, on, on songs or even on albums. I think we're not that far from, from that kind of model as well. Just, just other ways to get fans engaged in kind of interacting with and promoting the thing that they love. You know how fans get engaged these days, second screen, betting, data, all the like, great segue, Sashnik. Vista Equity Partners exploring a sale of stats performed. They have retained Evercore to lead that process. Uh, boy, Evan, it seems like you and I and the rest of the Sportico crew can't write enough about data firms. Uh, they're either going public, looking for mergers, uh, SPAC tie-ups, or just flat-out sales, and that's what we're seeing with stats performed now. Yeah, it seems like every episode, Scott, you and I are talking about either Genius Sports or Sport Radar, or sometimes both of them. Uh, well, Stats Perform, another kind of giant, the third giant in this industry. Uh, and they are, as you said, it looks like they're going to be uh, up for sale. Genius, as we've talked about many times, went public in a SPAC deal. Sport Radar had a SPAC negotiation fall apart recently. It sounds like they're trying IPO route. And now, potentially, Stats Perform will be sold Seems like all three of them kind of hitting the hitting the markets in, in in various ways. Scott Stats Perform is a just looking at the name. It's it's a combination of Stats Inc., which I think a lot of us, particularly baseball fans, will recognize as kind of one of the giants alongside Elias in in sports stats over the past few decades, and then Perform Group, 
which used to or, or is DAZN now, uh, a couple of years ago, decided to focus entirely on DAZN, the streaming service, and decided to unload the data pro did the, the the data service. Vista bought that part, combined it with Stats, which it already owned, and that is Stats Perform. I have no idea, Scott, if uh, what what price this thing might fetch. I think it's fair to say it'll be over a billion dollars. Do you think that's right? Oh yeah, for sure. I'd be surprised, uh, and I don't want to get too into this, but I'd be surprised if we were, weren't looking at, when it all said and done it over two billion, um, and could be much higher. You just have to see the, the the state of the market, and of course, what it's worth to some of the bidders. And wouldn't be surprised to see some consolidation here, Evan. I mean, whether mm. it could be Radar, could be Genius looking to buy the, you know, the, they're all looking for each other's tech um, and innovation. So wouldn't be surprised to see them poking or, around and see. Um, but could could be another private equity firm. Uh, not sure, but yeah, I'm with you. Uh, also, in that in that same vein, Sinclair making news, and New York Post had a report that Sinclair is looking to raise 250 million dollars from some hedge funds to start a streaming service. Uh, direct to consumer is hot. We all know that Sinclair Sinclair bought the RSNs, that's regional sports networks, from Fox for almost 10 billion dollars. Uh, not the easiest business in the world these days. Dish dropped them. You know, the way it works is something like Sinclair, you know, you pay a lot of money for the rights to the games, and then you would go and sell those rights to a cable provider or a satellite T provider. Uh, the only problem these days is you're getting a lot of pushback from the cable and satellite providers for the price that you want. So, uh, not being on Dish. Um, very, very diff- difficult spot. What did someone, and we'll leave the person's name out, but someone describe the RSN business as, go ahead, I know you like this one. I actually don't know where you're going. Oh, all right. Well, one high-ranking <laughs> sports executive that I deal with quite often referred to the RSN business in the past as a melting glacier because it was still a big part, you know, but has since upgraded the term to a melting ice cube. So oh. the glacier is gone. Now yeah. you're just the ice cube. And, and it's melting. So, of course, Amazon, we know, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sinclair has a piece of the Yes Network. But, I mean, these are a lot of teams. We're talking, they have the rights to 42 teams in 21 territories. And they're going to look to see if they can extract, ready for the price, we even have the price, $23 a month from sports fans. I mean, if you're a sports fan, you just want to see these teams, you don't need the cable past that. So it's going to be far cheaper than just getting cable. But, of course, there's no broadband as part of it. So, you know, um, an, an, an interesting play to see where Sinclair is going with these RSNs. Yeah, I can't. I, there's certainly a few that jump out. What a tough time to make that acquisition, by the way. In, in 2019, yeah. Sinclair yeah. paid almost $10 billion for these regional sports networks. Pandemic hits, suddenly none of these teams have have games. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's rocked the media industry in, in many ways. Uh, the only other thing I can think of, the, um, the Viagogo $4 billion acquisition of, of StubHub, also, right around the same time, came at a really tough time in retrospect, given the uh, given the pandemic. Uh, but no question, Scott, this is this is Sinclair trying to figure out the best way to monetize the assets that it paid a lot of money for. Uh, and I think there's a chance. You know, we keep talking about the way that betting kind of fuels media. I think there's a chance that this is an offering that draws particularly interest from sports betters who 
don't well, Bally's, know, yeah. you know, the Bagel, they don't have Bally's like, regional sports network. Yep. Sure. Yeah. It's the Bally's regional sports networks, but a lot of sports betters who, you know, don't aren't really fans of any particular team, but don't know when they're going to want to watch the Brewers game or when they're going to want to watch the Carolina hurricanes game or when they're going to want to watch the diamondbacks. This kind of gives a, this offering would give, I think better than almost anything else in the market, a, a really wide set of different teams across different sports. And that seems particularly interesting uh, for sports betters, again, who might not have a favorite team and might kind of very consistently want to be watching a lot of different groups in a lot of different cities and a lot of different sports. I'll break it down and then we'll move on. 16 NBA teams represented, 14 MLB teams represented, and 12 NHL teams represented there. So that's what you're dealing with. And let's wrap it up with a little Logan Paul, uh, Floyd Mayweather you surprised about 50 million bucks in pay-per-view uh, buys. You surprised by that? Yeah, that's, that's domestic U.S. buys. A million buys, $50, as you said, 50 million. Uh, I'm not surprised. It's a good number. It's not, you know, it's not Mayweather Pacquiao or Mayweather Conor McGregor big. I think both of those did over 4 million buys. But I think a million buys is, a, is kind of right in the range of a really good boxing or UFC event right now. Um, and I imagine Showtime is, is is more than happy with that. We talked, Scott, last episode about the rough breakdown, according to, to, to a few reports. Floyd had $10 million guaranteed, plus 50% of the of the pay-per-view gate, the domestic pay-per-view gate. Uh, Logan Paul, 250000 plus 10% of the domestic pay-per-view gate. If we just use that $1 million domestic buys, that's $35 million for Floyd, $5 million for Logan Paul. And that, again, does not include overseas buys. It doesn't include the sponsorship. It doesn't include ticket sales, et cetera. Uh, so yes, I think this ended up being a success for maybe everybody involved in this thing. Certainly great for Logan Paul. I think it worked out well for Showtime. Floyd Mayweather maybe is the one you can debate whether this was good or bad for him and his legacy. He certainly got paid for it. Um, but yes, I think overall 1 million buys, domestic buys is a good number uh, all around. Another uh, situation where athletes are looking at, wait a minute, what is this, uh, you know, event, big event, direct to consumer? Why am I working so hard? Can I make more doing less? Anyway, he is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media coordinator, Cora Veltman, will remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will become the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>